Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to episode 650 with my guest, Will Sasso. Uh, this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. From medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. My name, if you're wondering, is Paul Gilmartin, former stand-up comedian, former jackass that cooked chicken on basic cable for a good chunk, 16 years. They're bringing back dinner and movie, by the way. I'm excited to see what uh, what they do with that. I think I mentioned that a couple of episodes ago. Um, some terrible news to share with you. I just discovered that anybody who has emailed me through the website since October of 2022, I have not been receiving those emails. So if you're like, why did he not respond? What is his deal? Yes, I also happen to be stuck up and self-centered, but I have also not been getting your emails. So anybody that would like to resend their email to me, please do so. It My stomach dropped when I realized that. Um, I just thought people were like, eh, I don't really care to contact him anymore. I don't really care what he thinks. I don't care to offer him anything. So, yeah. Oh, that, was, that happened yesterday, I realized that. And my web guy is still working on it, so it might take a couple of days for him to get things cleared up but unfortunately there's no way to retrieve the email addresses or the emails that were sent but uh, people did get confirmations that they had filled out an email which to me makes it even worse because then you truly believe that the email went through anyway i'm going to try not to dwell on that uh, thank you to those of you who have uh, signed up for patreon I got some, how do I explain this? I gotta, I have to tread carefully. Um, a large source of income for this podcast um, is no longer going to be there. And uh, to, to say that it is dire is not an exaggeration. And I really debate how to share this on the podcast because I'm so afraid of being that panhandling podcaster, but the vitality uh, and longevity of this podcast um, 
I'm very worried about it. Not that I'm going to stop doing it, but that I will, won't be able to support myself doing this. So I'm looking at other revenue streams to try to keep uh, uh, supporting myself. I don't know if I'm going to, you know, maybe try to sell furniture or I, I, I don't know what yet. I'm trying not to freak out. I'm leaning into my support groups, I'm me- meditating, I'm praying, and I really tr- truly believe that the universe has not turned its back on me. Maybe there's an, another opportunity coming that is um, still within you know what I do with the, with the podcast, but uh, I'm scared. I'm scared. There you have it. You know, I talk about emotional honesty a lot on the podcast, and for me, there's a fine line between what do I share on the podcast and what is uh, do the listeners not need to hear, and I really went back and forth on whether or not to share this, but I think it's an example of what I preach, which is when you need help, ask for help, and I hate asking for help. I hate it. Somebody shamed me in an email a couple of months back uh, using the verb belly aching for donations. And, uh, you know, I took in what they had to say and I was like, you know, you just got to let go what other people think of you. There, there are going to be people who think to themselves, fuck that guy. Did you not save your TV money? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I can't, I can't control that, but what I can control is how I carry myself. And, um, there you have it. There you have it. Oh, uh, and for people who have signed up on Patreon, something that I I would like to start doing is for people who, um, are monthly donors on Patreon at the $5 level and above is to find a way for you to submit audio uh, for me to possibly incorporate into the podcast. It could be maybe you're reading your survey, maybe it's a you know a funny description or an accurate description that you think you know describes what the podcast is or a sign off for the end of the podcast, anything. Um, I think that would be a cool thing. It's people have been suggesting for years that I incorporate audio uh, into the show. But my my worry is, oh, it's going to be unwieldy. Somebody's going to upload something with a virus, you know, and on and on and on. But I uh, put a post on Patreon asking for people's suggestion of a way that they could send me sound files uh, that is not unwieldy. So there you have that. Let's let's get into some fucking surveys. This is creepy. Should I, from here on out, is this how I should introduce surveys? Maybe I go a little lower. Maybe I bring a little Randy Savage into it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, brother. I actually met him. He was a very nice guy. Very nice guy. I don't know if I ever shared that story on the podcast about the time I did dinner in a movie at a WCW uh, event, a wrestling event to promote dinner and a movie. I think it was the second or third year we were doing the show. We were trying to figure out what to do. And uh, and Randy Savage goes, brother, you could take the diamond cutter, which is a move that this one wrestler did, which is punishing and brutal. And we did eventually wind up doing it. But 
Randy followed it up with going, Brother, your phone's going to be ringing off the hook. All right. Surveys. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Codependent with my cat. Hi, Paul and the mean DJ that lives inside you. I wanted to ask you about the responsibility we apportion to our parents for our issues. I've noticed that, like me, you hold your mom to a way higher account for fucking you up than your dad because your mom was actively parenting while your dad was absent. I hold my mother to a much higher account for my issues, but that's because my dad wasn't really present. However, I acknowledge that this is largely due to patriarchal power structures. Parentheses, the onus for child raising falls on the mother and fathers are culturally sanctioned to be absent either emotionally or literally. In therapy, I'm trying to get more in contact with my anger towards my dad for absenting himself and forgive my mom, although I hold boundaries with her and we are low contact. I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts. I could not identify more. I have really struggled to get in touch with the anger at my dad. And I think, I don't know, maybe it's because my dad never suffocated me emotionally the way my mom did. Um, Sometimes I think it's harder to get in touch with the absence of something. But intellectually, yeah. Um, and And I want to preface it. My parents did many, many great things for me. And deep down, I believe they are, well, my dad's gone, are and were good-hearted people. So, you know, it, this is not to th- to throw them under the bus, but it's up to me as an adult to process what happened, you know. Um, I, didn't, I didn't cause what happened, but... Um, so, yeah, I, it is hard to, to get in in touch with that and I'm certainly not not fighting it and I don't have any anger at my mom anymore but I think that's also because we don't have a relationship so I'm not feeling suffocated and disrespected by her which was the pattern of behavior where my dad was if anything neglectful and and tuned out but you could sometimes get his uh attention and and he would be present but I think I just gave up after a while uh, because it was just easier. And similarly with my mom, for a long time, I just gave up on setting boundaries and saying, I, I don't like when you do this or you touch me or you know, you talk to me like I'm your husband. So I hope that answers your question. Here's our next survey. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself Life Lost While Living. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? You're fat. You're ugly. How could anyone love you when even your own parents can't? You are not important enough to have support in your life. Men will continue hurting you for the rest of your life, and you deserve it. I can't imagine how many people, especially women, have that same voice in their head. And I imagine a lot of men, too, feel that way about women. You know, I, I think when when men talk about, um, you know, I don't feel safe around women, you know, rarely do I think they mean physically. Sometimes, yes, but it's more, and for me, it, it, it wasn't as much that I was going to be hurt. It's that I was going to be overwhelmed by their neediness and lack of boundaries. And it wasn't necessarily a conscious thought. It was a feeling. 
But I'm glad, I'm glad you shared that. Not that you're experiencing that and thinking that, but I hope you know how not alone you are in thinking and feeling that and that that is just the mean voice in your head. Uh, we had a, somebody fill out a bunch of loves, and I'm going to be reading throughout the podcast, and they call themselves, uh, themselves, List Lover. And they write, I love that after starting to write down at least one positive thing about the day before I go to sleep, it only took a week for me to start noticing more positive things in my everyday life. One day I was feeling really shitty, tired and frustrated, and I had to take my dog for a walk in the rain, I caught myself noticing how the rain made it a lot easier to open a poop bag with wet fingers. In parentheses, I really struggle opening them. While opening one, I realized that I can write that on the list of positive things, and I couldn't resist smiling like a fool because this was the thing that I was appreciating while struggling to want to live at all. Oh my God, do I love that. And they also write, I love that a French bakery opened right next to my home so I can get freshly baked goods on my morning walks. The food is honestly so delicious that it makes me less suicidal, reminding me to enjoy the small things in life. Oh, love it. Love it. I'm almost, I'm almost angry. I love that so much. I need a person to take my love, my overflowing love out on. Is that going to be challenging morally, spiritually, logistically? This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by uh, Brian. And he says, what are the things you recommend someone do when looking for a therapist? Uh, Great question. There are a lot of different uh, therapy uh, finders out there. You can talk to somebody that you trust um, in my experience, because I've had, I don't know, maybe eight therapists in the 40 years I've been going to therapy, uh, do they meet the requirements of the state that they practice in? Uh, most or at least many of the states require a license. So I would definitely see if they're licensed, if that's required in your state. Uh, I think another really important thing is wanting to find somebody who has experience in any particular issues that you're struggling with. If you're struggling with um, OCD, you know, Kimberly Quinlan is a therapist that we've had on the podcast so many times, and she practices exposure therapy with her uh, clients. Um, I, I have to imagine that would be so much more helpful than going to see somebody who just has a passing knowledge of dealing with with OCD. Uh, The chemistry with your therapist is incredibly important. Uh, Yes, their knowledge of issues is important, but much like a doctor that has a terrible bedside manner, it it can really kind of cancel out any knowledge that they have if the way they convey it to you uh, feels judgy or cold. Um, Feeling safe, not judged, and listened to for me, means everything in a therapeutic environment. Um, and then there's obviously some some ones that are rare, but gigantic red flags is if your therapist starts to talk to you like they're your friend or wants to connect with you 
you know, meet up for a drink outside of therapy. I mean, that is so, such a violation of ethics. Um, if they begin to open up emotionally to you about something they're struggling with, that's a huge red flag. Again, those are not common, but sadly they do happen. And of course, the worst case scenario is where, you know, they uh, sexually take advantage of a client, which is so awful. I don't even have words to describe it, but I've interviewed people on the podcast who have gone through that very, very thing. I hope that answers your question. Here's the next survey. This is from The Voice in Your Head, filled out by a woman who calls herself mellow but grieving. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? People don't care about what you think. Everyone just pretends that they like you when they're really not impressed at all. You really don't have it together and people see it. Your boyfriend slash mom slash dad doesn't value your opinions. They just pretend to. Thank you for that. And you know the one where you said they're not really impressed at all? I don't think friends ever want to be impressed by a friend. And I don't know why it is that we think we need to be impress- impressive to our, to our friends. They just want to feel connected to us. This is from the love survey filled out by SH. And they write, I love falling asleep with the dim light of the television fading to the tune of a rerun show. It feels so wholesome and familiar. That is a great one. That, that, and there, there's sometimes too that, that melancholy feeling of something from the past that might even, you know, have reminded of as a time in our life that we were sad, but there's also this weird comfort to it. But yeah, I, I, I get that one. That, that was a great one. Thank you for sharing that. This is from The Struggle in a Sentence, filled out by Ampersand Soup. And uh, they write about their self-harm. It's a pain in the ass to cover up to keep everyone else comfortable. Oh, that's such a good one. And about their OCD, it feels like the spiders under the toilet seat are going to crawl in my vagina and lay eggs if I don't check the closet ceiling for ghosts before sitting down. Oh, my Lord, what a visual that is. But if you think about it, if a spider's going to lay eggs, why not put them in the place where there are already eggs? The spider has two choices, the refrigerator or your coochie coo. I don't know if that's helpful advice. I have the feeling it's not. This is from the voice in your head filled out by a woman who calls herself me. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? Over the years, I've worked through countless hours of therapy in an attempt to improve the way I talk to myself. I am a work in progress. For instance, here is one of the things I say. Don't worry. Your husband really does love you, you stupid cunt. Her words, not mine. Yeah, how awful would it be if that was my tag at the end of it? This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. 
a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And then finally, this is a uh, an awful moment that I've read before on the podcast. It's been years since I read it, but I just oh, I love this one so much. Uh, and this is filled out by Suze. And she writes, uh, when I was 12 years old, my addict father died of an Oxycontin overdose. That's the part I love. Uh, Because my mother and I were estranged from him and that side of his family, my grandparents allowed us no part in his funeral proceedings. They did, however, let his mentally ill and narcissistic brother write the lengthiest, most grandiose, and incoherent obituary our town's newspaper has ever seen. It both included a full paragraph about me and an about the author section in which my uncle described himself as a doctor and personal philosopher. He was actually neither of these things, barely having a high school diploma. I cannot even imagine how many people read my father's page-long obituary and laughed their asses off at how ridiculous it was. Several years later, my mother and I were were volunteering at our local church, which was serving as a Red Cross medical clinic and temporary shelter for Hurricane Katrina evacuees. To our absolute horror, we discovered that my mentally ill uncle was also there, dressed in a lab coat. It was even monogrammed and impersonating a doctor. He was walking among the refugees, taking blood pressure and who knows what the hell else, totally undetected by the real doctors around him. I will never forget my mother's face as she explained to the head physician about the imposter in our midst. His first response was, I was wondering why he was struggling with the blood pressure cuff. My consciousness might be disintegrating. Heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. Or with my Barbies. <laughs> 
the greatest source of our suffering ordinary is where all the good stuff happens is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions is very hard to heal in dark isolation i developed compassion it is in connection and community where that happens the process was nearly unbearable like i'm gonna have to kill myself we'll be right back after this (laughs) i'm very excited to be here with uh with will sasso uh, we have a mutual friend, Lisa Arch. You guys were on Mad TV at the same time. We had, yeah, it was our first season together. Uh, yeah. We were both on the show. Yeah, yeah. She is such a lovely human she's, being. She's fantastic. And I, Russ is great too. Yeah. And Russ uh, worked on the crew then. That's how they met. That's how they met. And they kept it secret for a while and it was super cute. And yeah. then, and then you know, they're kind of like, here we are. And then they got married. Yeah. Um, you're a voice actor, uh, you appear in TV and film, and uh, is there anything that, that you want to plug right now? I suppose we could wait until the end so people don't forget. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I got a podcast called Dudesy. We could talk about it whenever. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about it because <clears throat> you were just sharing before we started recording. It's AI-driven. That's right. It is the we, first so, yeah, podcast uh, driven by AI. And when you say driven by AI, and for people that uh, don't know, AI is artificial intelligence, which uh, is the monster coming down the road oh, yeah. quickly. Yeah. Um, I suppose depending on how you look at it. And depending on when you're listening to this podcast, it may have already taken over. So Yes. <laughs> you, could, you could be in the matrix having yeah. your blood drained yeah. while, while you're listening to it. Exactly. So when you say driven by AI, what, what do you mean? Uh, well, it's a, it's a podcast sort of interface that, that essentially this proprietary AI and these people that um, approached us with this AI, the, the, essentially it's, it's learning about podcasts. It wants to develop podcasts. And uh, where we come in is it was looking for two guys who have podcast experience, myself and my buddy, Chad Culchin, who is a, uh, a writer. We've known each other for like 20 years. Uh, both have had podcasts before. We did one together for a while and we're good friends in real life. The podcast wanted that and two guys that could work together now. And essentially it sort of curates our, our, our lives and experience and uh, th- by means of well, essentially, we've given it everything. It has passwords to all of our communications, email, text, our search histories, purchase histories. It knows everything about us online, uh, has you know access to all of our hard drives and everything, and says, here's you guys. You know, Will, you're an actor. Chad, you're a writer. And, and here's all your funny stuff. Will, you do this silly stuff. Chad, you've written about this and that. And it essentially designs the show for us. Or an example would be like, you know, you know, it, and it has this, you know, this AI kind of voice that keeps it's uh, it's advancing a bit. But it says like, you know, uh, uh, podcasts about news or big business. Will you will now do this news this news segment uh, in the show? Uh, you uh, in your vo- Hulk Hogan voice? So it's like, you know, so it's like, well, let me tell you something about what's going on in the Middle East, or you know, whatever. Um, and so it writes some stuff, which is very interesting. Recently, most recently, I should tell you, it it uh, basically it crapped out a one hour special of Tom Brady doing stand up. Oh my god! Uh, because he had expressed some interest. The in hilarious doing Tom Brady, yeah, the comedy <laughs> stylings of Tom Brady, and um, and yeah, we were we were approached with uh, litigation by <laughs> Tom Brady's people. Yeah, so it's interesting. It's very interesting to be sort of where Chad and I are in this thing. But at the end of the day, it's a comedy podcast. It's super silly. I love doing it. 
and uh, that that's it. It it, it sounds uh, really interesting, and uh, I don't I don't know what the word is, but um, terrifying. Terrifying. <laughs> terrifying. Well, it's it's terrifying to me because I'm more, you know, I joke on the show and say I'm a humanist and Chad, you know, I don't know what Chad is. But, uh, yeah, he can't wait for the AI overlords to come come around and uh, make sure that we're all yeah hooked up to that. The Matrix is sitting there in the blue goo with a plug sticking out of the back of our heads. Where do you want the plug uh, in your body? You go arm, leg, butthole? Um, butthole would be... Yeah, butthole, butthole. If I don't feel anything, because then I don't know, I have yes. to look at it all the time. That's a long time to be uncomfortable. Yeah, in that area. yeah, yeah. It would be nice to just sort of you know reach back as you go to sleep and mm-hmm. hopefully pull it out without too much pain, and uh, use it as a CPAP. <laughs> uh, so you are from outside Vancouver. Yeah. Um, what your parents are uh, Italian immigrants, they correct? Are. Yeah. So what? What was that like? Not that you had any other experience to compare it to, but uh, what are some memories growing up uh, having parents that that had moved to, uh, to Canada from Italy? You know, it was interesting because I grew up in a in a straight down the middle uh, middle class town called Ladner. It's like twenty five minute drive outside of Vancouver, so it was still still connected and. I say that to say there was, you know, there was a village around me and, and there was school and, and peers and there were other immigrant families, which was nice. So it was a pretty, it was a, it was a good upbringing. Um, my father um, was sort of the patriarch of the, the family in Canada, brought over some aunts and uncles, a bunch of cousins. And so, you know, a lot of weekends we were at the beach nearby and hanging out. Sunday dinners were a big thing. It was a pretty typical um, Italian American, Italian Canadian upbringing. As far as being a you know an, a kid, you know my brother and sister are older than me. They were both born there, and then I was born in Canada like ten years later. And uh, uh, you get away, you get to get away with a lot of stuff, which is interesting uh, because they're just not. You know, I feel like in the ten years that my brother and sister were were you know had on my parents, by the time they're ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen years old. They know way more about the country and, and sort of the social um, ins and outs than my parents ever could have hoped to or, or c- could figure out in their adulthood. So there's – and then I come along way later and I'm growing up in the 80s and, and it's almost like and, – and they're all – you know, they're they're tiny and, and brown and I came out really big and blue eyes and stuff. So I, I was – you know, I was like a big white German kid, you know, playing football and – um, eating seconds and thirds and stuff. So it, it, it they are, it was, uh, I had this very, I had a different, a very different upbringing from them. You know, they grew up during World War II and I grew up in, you know, the eighties and, you know. How old were they during the war? They were in the, my father was in the, uh, <clears throat> my father was in the fourth grade. My mom was in the second grade. Um, and uh, and then that was it. They got pulled out of school, and that was it. I think that they were around there. So wait, wait. My well, my my pop was born in thirty six, and my mom was born in uh, thirty eight. Okay. So yeah, they were pretty. And young. then they, what they uh, moved to the countryside to get well, away from the fighting, or what? At, at times, you know, like uh, my old man has some stories of of uh, literally running into the countryside and and remembering seeing you know Allied planes and just dropping bombs and 
crazy shit like that. Yeah. And uh, mistaking the, you know, these Italian Italians going up into the, up into the hillside for soldiers, you know, shit like that. Um, but they, they, no, they kind of stuck it out. My mom's family was in what's known as the street, it's called the Palonetta, which is like, you know, where, when you think of the, the, the clotheslines going back and forth and mm-hmm. sort of these old, um, I think the Spaniards dug them right out of the mountain. And, right. uh, so they weren't going anywhere, you know, they're really right in the city and those were their means. And so their upbringing was <clears throat> really, you know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, I mean, as an example, my old man learned uh, English and a couple other languages while sailing in the Italian Navy. So when you bring back a bad report card, my dad's like, you know, how are you uh, not doing good in English? I mean, you you speak English, you know, like, you know how right. I learned English? And he's talking about, you know, being in the bottom of the boat with correspondence by moonlight, getting to a port, sending off a book, getting another one. And you're like, oh, I'm a piece of shit, you know. So, you know, it's that old joke. uh I remember Janine Garofalo had a joke of like our parents lived their lives so that we could have a much better life. And guess what? We do. And uh, we, uh, I think she called it a, a very start my orange generation. I, you know, I, it was, uh, it was nice. <laughs> so do you, do you feel like, um, it's, as somebody who does impressions, uh, do you feel like, uh, being around dialects and stuff like that tuned you into things? Thinking about that, where did the love of voices and impressions come from? Well, you know, my mom and my mom's side of the family, they're real jokers. My dad's side, not so much. Uh, uh, he's a super mellow dude, was a super mellow dude. But, but yeah, like I, my mom does impersonations of her family. You know, some of my uncles do impersonations of each other and stuff. And I, you know, I, I just kind of feel like there was a, you know, they were jokers. Mm-hmm. So there's a comedy bug there. And then, um, yeah, my, I remember years ago, my older brother told me that <clears throat> my first impersonation was Benny Hill, you know, because I would just watch Benny Hill because right. they were watching it. And, you know, j- nothing outside of just his, like, you know, take to the side, to the camera. Facial expressions. Yeah. And then and then you're watching, you know, as a kid, I'm watching SETV and stuff like this and Monty Python and early Saturday Night Live. And you're going, you're seeing them. I think it kind of broke open for me when you when you see someone pretending to be someone else, and to mm-hmm. me that was just the coolest thing. Yeah, like what you can just pretend to be someone, and it's hilarious. And and that that thing that's intrinsically hilarious about it that it, you know is lost on on most of us. Although it's what makes us laugh, I think to a child it becomes super apparent. Like you're pretending to be that person, right. and you sound just like them. Um, so I started doing you know. With me and my pals, it was like literally uh, uh, doing impersonations of wrestlers and stuff. And clearly, I've come a long way in that Doozy's got me impersonating Hulk Hogan. And um, <laughs> and, and maybe one of the best Jesse Ventura's. Uh, oh, cheers. <laughs> yeah, which as a kid, it was just like watching wrestling and him, him and Gorilla Monsoon, like, you know, I'll give credit where credit is due, Monsoon. And- <laughs> Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades, Monsoon. You know, uh, that and then, you know, uh, 40 years later, close only counts. You know. So uh, uh, comedy when you're a kid, uh, obviously 
it sounds like you loved the craft of it, the imagination of it. Was there any part of you, you know, I hate to dive into the trope of comics using it to escape some type of feeling mm-hmm. or whatever. Was there any part of that, any part of your life that caused you anxiety that you felt like comedy helped deflect? Absolutely. And I think about it, I think about it way more now. And I think about, you know, I kind of feel like, um, you know, I mean, whatever we've had a, we've had a weird few years and I think it's caught, uh, caused us, uh, to really sort of think of why, why, what's funny about this? Why, why do I laugh at this? Why do I laugh? Why do I need <laughs> comedy? You know what I mean? So for me, I, I've sort of been realizing more recently that it's like, oh, comedy and, and just, just goofing around and being a silly ass has sort of been my friend through so much. And I think that, you know, people who are in our business and, and um, people that are in entertainment, um, you know, regardless of what your art form is, you're, you're, of course, you're, you're creating. And, and I think a big part of that is, not taking yourself too seriously. Even the most serious people have to not take themselves too seriously in order to create. Um, you need to have a, you need to be able to take a third person view of yourself and, and getting into fantasy will help you do that. So when I look back at, you know, you know, being a kid, being the youngest, wanting to, you know, wanting to be like my idols, I think first of all, I just loved making people laugh, trying to make my friends and family laugh. Um, I do feel like there was a lot of, uh, it was like a friend. It was, there was healing there and, and now much later feeling, you know, really fortunate to be doing what I'm doing for a living still. Um, uh, it's, it's, you know, as we get older and I mentioned, you know, my dad, I said, my dad used to this, you know, after my dad passes away and stuff and you, and you sort of you know the family shrinks and it and everyone spreads out and you you sort of realize well i can still like laugh my ass off at the dumbest things and it's like this is this is my friend and and also I, again feeling fortunate to be in the business that i'm in this is provided for me being being a yeah. being a silly ass has has provided for me being a, a you know i mean i love doing dramatic work but largely i'm a comedic actor and just you know Showing up the set to, you know, goof around and make a little play with your friends and and also have some laughs along the way that aren't even on camera. Sometimes that's the funniest stuff. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. When, when we were doing dinner in a movie, it, I would often wish that they would release the stuff between the takes because sure. a, a lot of times that's the more authentic you yeah. because it's it's uncensored and there's put it on at three a.m. Yeah, yeah <laughs> there's something so fun about making the crew laugh out. Loud, totally. Yeah. Well, because they've seen everything. They've seen it. They're so jaded. So if they laugh, you're like, you know, and it's usually some, yeah, some guy behind the camera who lives in Simi Valley who you love, and he's kicking the pants. And if he goes, (laughs) you're like, oh fuck, I nailed it. So you you use the word healing, comedy helping uh, with healing. What Uh what what in particular? Well, you know, I mean, it's it's a, you know, I mean. Sorry, I, I'm here on uh, on mental health happy hour. I'm not going to say, well, you know, because um, you don't know until I tell you. And everyone listening, I'm going to get to the point when I say, you know, um, uh, you know, <laughs> it's like 
it's like, you know, I mean, it's an Italian household. It was very loud. Um, you know, look, part of the part of the reason I was excited to do this show today and, and come here and do it, I mentioned to you before we recorded, my wife is a huge fan and has listened. Literally, she's up to date. She's listened to every episode. So I've listened to a bunch of the show. And um and I really uh enjoy it and I and I and um you know I feel like there's a you know everybody has uh there's something and and for me finding comedy through um through the sort of things that any sort of kid can go through or family can go through and then uh, you know I'll say and we'll get into it but yeah I you know I I, I, over the past 20 years or whatever, I had got into severe clinical depression. And then I was, uh, I, I, so I'm, I'm diagnosed as uh, bipolar two, And I've never actually brought that up anywhere. I figured this would be a nice place. Thank you to, for sharing that. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. I, I honestly, I, I got to tell you. I'm a I'm quite a private person, but I, I it's like if I'm here on mental <laughs> mental illness happy hour, I'm wasting everyone's time if I'm not going to be completely uh, transparent with that. So that's on my dad's side of the family, and you know there's there's a you know when things get loud and Italian and shit, it was healing to me to be able to go off to my room and and uh, just come up with stuff fantasy and and i used to make videos and shit and just hide in that sort of thing and and did know. your dad struggle with bipolar he did so um, was he mercurial uh a little bit you look my my um my um my family was very fortunate we had an awesome family doctor and my mom is the toughest person i've ever known and if it wasn't for my mom i don't know what the heck would have happened to the family she is She's just tough as nails. And that doctor, Dr. Kaysen, was so fantastic and knew my father so well. And and look, here's a here's the thing. When I was a kid, I used to yeah, I'd you know, I'd sit there and I'd pray at the side of my bed and I would thank God that I would literally <laughs> idiotic now. But I would I would say, you know, God, if you had to give this disorder to somebody, I'm glad it was my father. Because he's so patient. My father always preached about patience. He was the sweetest man, so kind and sweet. And he dealt with it. He, you know, he dealt with it very well. And I feel like we had the the most advanced medication for him uh, at that point. You know, after the sixties and seventies, in particular, with like you know electroshock and stuff that was pretty gnarly and. Things like lithium that were pretty gnarly. Moving into the 80s. And, and had he experienced any of those things? Sure, yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, you know, it's part of me is like, again, I feel like this is, uh, I, 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 I don't mind talking about this stuff like, you know, with, with friends and stuff like that. And I feel like this is a, this is an environment to share this sort of thing if it can help someone. Um, yeah, it was. I don't even know why I said that, but it was really, you know, there were, you know, you think about it. You think about growing up in a town like that where I had a lot of my friends on the street that I grew up on and everyone's in their storms and you don't know what's going on. And here's the, here's the family that you can tell has the 
you know, alcoholic dad and here's the abusive parents and here are the ones that hit their kid because when you go up for a high five, the kid flinches, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and But you're not talking about your parents no, being not alcoholic parents. or no. physically abusive. No, I mean, nope. No, I, I, I mean, I feel like in the 70s and 80s and shit, we all took one, you know, upside the head here and there. It was mm-hmm. just sort of a different time. Um, but no, not not to the degree that, that it would. No, nothing like that. A, a good, a nice, healthy Italian uh, gets slapped in the in the head every once in a while kind of thing. Um, I wouldn't hit my kids, but that's the way it was. So, uh, no, not, nothing – Nothing too gnarly. Nothing too gnarly. And again, me, look, my old man, as far as that's concerned, I could count that on one hand, a couple of fingers. He he was, he really was a, a loving guy, and he really got my, he he got my my mom out of there in Italy. He he saw, he saw opportunity, and he wanted to. You know, look, he was a waiter and a maitre d' all over Europe, and uh, and then was uh, in his early thirties. He might have just, might have even been his late twenties when he when he left. My grandfather, my dad's dad, was a chef who you know he cooked in New York and Chicago, and he finally got his paper. You know he didn't have papers, so they're like you're out. And at that point, when my dad started becoming interested in moving to America, my grandfather was like, "Look at Canada. The immigration was really loosening up. A lot of immigrants came to Canada in the seventies. So it was Toronto, Montreal, or New York. He had a great resume, Hotel Vancouver." In Vancouver was like, we can't promise you a job, but this is a great resume, so if you're here. And, uh, you know, look, I, my dad's side of the family, they were, you know, they were not they were not super nice. My mom's side, loving, wonderful. And when you say not super nice, cold, kind of yeah. hostile. Yeah, yeah, in my opinion. And I don't mind saying it. Um, yeah. And, and uh, I don't think they appreciated happy people. And that's my mom. Joyous, happy, laughing, singing, and that's my whole mom's side of the family. So I don't, and I don't feel like I'm, you know, look, I am Italian at the end of the day. I don't like to share that sort of thing. But again, if it's going to help someone, it's like my old man was a sweet guy, really loved, he was just such a peaceful, patient man. And he didn't want to, he didn't want to get in your way. He stood up for what was right. He was a real, he was a great man. And he got my mom out of there. He's like, let's get the hell out of here, you know, and took my brother and sister were both. My sister was a toddler. My brother was a newborn. So it wasn't necessarily the country. It was kind of more the um, familial environment he wanted to take her out of. What 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 do you mean when you say let's let's get out of here? Uh, You know, I think that I think that um, no, it was more it was absolutely way more about the opportunity and. I always say my dad was born Canadian. He liked the wide open spaces. You know, he wanted to hunt ducks and go camping. And every week we always had a camper or a camperized van. We were always running around. We were in the Rocky Mountains and camping and stuff. In Vancouver, it doesn't get more beautiful than Vancouver. It's gorgeous. And we were out, you know, in the summers and stuff all the time. So that was the, you know, the reason was the new world. Go get out of here. My old man. You know, he would talk about Italy. They're all smoking. They talk too much. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's Italian. That's you, you know. So it was absolutely that. But at the same time, you know, my, my old man passed away three years ago. And then you start to hear stories and stuff from the uncles and the older cousins and shit. Like? Like, uh-oh. Like, you know, like they weren't nice to my mom. 
his side of the family. Including your dad? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. Not my dad. Gotcha. The rest of them, you know. And, uh, you know, just the, 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 the you know, the, the my, my grandfather. Verbally? Physically? Verbally, and I feel like physically it was more up to the men. But there was, you know, there's stuff that I would hear that I would be like, who, what the, what the F, you know, like when you hear like your grandmother is telling so-and-so, you know, get her in line and, you know. Really? Yeah, shit like that where it's just like, you know, I, I want to travel back in time and, you know, wring their necks. I can't believe it. So, again, my old man being a, a real peaceful, patient man who who is a he's, – he's a loner, you know, like he's a real – and when I say loner, it's like him and his family. He mm-hmm. needs his immediate family. My dad was the guy when I mentioned all the Italians hanging out together and we're at the beach and everyone's having a great time and there's Tupperware full, filled with baked pasta and stuff. Dad's just sitting back laughing, listening to stories and shit. That's what I mean by, you know, he's always kind of in his own meditative space. Right. He would, you know, he would quote, you know, again, meditative sort of Chinese proverbs and, mm-hmm. and shit. I'm like, what WAP does this? <laughs> so yeah, thinking about what, what he must have been like at the age of like 25, 30, 35, he's like, screw it. Screw you. Screw this. I'm out of here. And your relationship with your dad, um, did you, I mean, you know, it was the 70s and, and 80s, which was a different time, I think, probably, in terms of what the standard of emotional language and connection was. Um, did you, was there any part of you that longed for more connection to your father? Not really, because I, look, I sort of, Showed up in that family, like I said, 10 years late, kind of the, you know, the quote unquote mistake. And I loved the guy. So I was like, hey, dad, let's this. That. I love you. I love you. Hey, dad, I love you. So would you say it back? Yeah. And I feel like I probably got uh, more of that than my brother and my sister did. Did they resent you? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> 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 the jury's out. Uh, I don't know. I, I How mean, could I, they not? I could I look. Let me let me say this. If I were in their shoes, I would. Yes. Yeah. Enough, and, and enough I, said. Yeah. They are. They're. Come on. They're nine and eleven years old, and here comes this blue-eyed kid with curly blonde hair, who's like, you know, it's. It, I, I would feel like, what the fuck? We're fine. What do we need this one for? You know. And my sister will tell me it's like, you know, you were brought up almost like an only child, William. And you had different rules than we did. I'm like, I, I, I know, I know. I'm so sorry. Uh, I'll go back. I'll go back. Okay. Um. <laughs> and di- and did that change over time as they became older, or, or is there still a bit of? Of course not, Paul. Um, <laughs> why would we change that? Uh, so I'm here in L.A. It's been a few. Uh, you remember dinner in the movie years in the '90s. Speaking of the '90s, we had a good time. I got out here, like the old man. No, um, you know, I don't know. I kind of feel like, if, if, like again, if I were them, I think about it a lot. I think about if I were them, you know, I don't know. They get a pass for me because I. Um, and by a pass, I mean like I, we don't have to fuck with each other sometimes. You know what I mean? Um, I, I kind of feel like if I was in, let's not forget, they were kids. Yeah. They, they were 
children. But I'm talking about them as adults. If you're not comfortable talking about Well, they're that not going to listen to this because okay. uh, I'm in it. Um, so does that answer your question? <laughs> that totally answers yeah. my question. Yeah. <laughs> what a beautiful summation. <laughs> and, you know, the thing that I, I, I think is important and I want to highlight is the fact that you understand that, you, that they're – or that the, the, there's some compassion there. You kind of made a face when I when I said that. Um, I don't fault them. I don't blame yes, them. Yes, that's what I mean. I, it's honestly, I'm I'm fine, I, and I agree. It's like I did have a different. I was also raised by '80s television, so I'm like, yeah, MTV, Mr. T, Hulk Hogan, Cindy Lauper, Pee Wee Herman. I had a great time. You know, my fr- I had a great group of friends, most of which were still were still pals. Uh, we're all still pals. It's just whether we can all get together and shit. Right. I'm out of town. I, I got no complaints. So I, I feel like, you know, the problems for me sort of started being here and being alone and being away from that, um, nice like moving to Los Angeles. Yeah. Yeah. You know, loneliest place and all that shit. So, uh, but, but as far as my brother and sister, go, I mean, they're doing their thing. You know, as you get older, you just kind of go like. If that's the way it's going to be, yeah. then that's fine. And and so often it's really not even about that person. It's of the course. filter that reality yeah. is coming through. And yeah. it's not about the thing. It's about the five things before the thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and I try to, I mean, I feel like uh, getting older and older, I kind of feel like, well, let me take myself. I'm, I'm, my ego is not, or at least I, you know, I try to put my ego in its place and go, this yeah, this has nothing to do with me. Let me, you know, I'd much rather be doing something else somewhere else. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. And you get together for uh, dinners and things over the years, and then you kind of realize, well, dynamic's not changing, and I got nothing to say about it. Yeah, sometimes detaching. Uh, I think I think so often we can become. Uh, obsessed with trying to create some type of attachment that's just not there and facing the reality that maybe we need to detach with love and compassion, even if it that means never talking to that person. Oh, yeah. I think one of the dynamics that it, it is so tempting to fall into is the one where you keep going to the dry well expecting there to be water and the worst and it just poisons other areas of your life yeah yeah and you'll just keep bashing your head against that wall and hurting yourself and forget it and i know that for some people for some people it's harder than others look i had a loving mom and dad that's that's crucial to to who i am and um uh, married now, uh, you know, we just got married, uh, late last year and, um, and, uh, I've been with my gal now for a little over four years and, um, uh, I'm 48. I got 11 years on her. So, you know, we're planning mm-hmm. to have children and all that stuff. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really, I'm really into that. Like, like what that future is going to look like. And, and my wife has very, very, very specific thoughts on how we will raise and love our children. And that comes from her, her past, you know? So, and I don't envy that, uh, you know, you know, she, I, like I'd said, she's listened to every single episode of this show and she finds a lot of healing in it. 
when I knew I was going to do the show, I'm forgetting the name of the doctor who, who, um, who's the, the woman who deals uh, with a lot of narcissists. Oh, I can't uh, remember her name. Ramani Dervasola? Oh, that might be it. Yeah. At, at any rate, I was listening to one of them the other day. We're like, we're driving and I go, Oh, listen to this. And she heard the lady's voice and goes, Oh yeah, it's so-and-so. So, you know, my wife has her own things and and um to be and I would like to get her as a guest. Oh my gosh, she would yes. that would be a that would be like a one of those, you know, 3-hour episodes if you could you could just leave the room. She'll but uh, you know, with her uh and I asked her, I said, "Is it okay if I just say this much with her? It's her parents." So, mm-hmm. and if I whisper it, maybe no one will care. <laughs> but uh so I again, I got you know, uh, you know, I have two people that I that I empathize with, and and they are my peers. You know, even though they're older than me and stuff, it, the brother, you know, sibling dynamics are very difficult, especially in a family where, like I said, the family is just kind of starting, and it's in this new world, and the parents don't really know the rules, and here comes. You know, I mean, we're all off in our own directions, and they're a couple of alphas, my brother and sister. But then here comes this real rule breaker who's like, oh, and you know what else? I'm going to pursue acting. And then I started working. I've been working since I was a teenager. So, you know, I mean, that's that sucks. Um, <laughs> not for me so much, but for them. And so I get it. I get it. I would, I would, if I knew some of this shit earlier, I'd just, you know, Right. Move to Japan and right. get out of their way. Uh, so you were starting to, you were comparing the, uh, I don't know, dysfunction, lack of connection with your uh, siblings versus your wife's uh, relationship with her parents. Who I will talk shit about all day, every day without, yes. I really, I, whatever, the, anyway. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I yeah. Do you feel like that has ever affected her ability to be emotionally intimate with you just because of you know, trauma, lack of trust, whatever there might be? Don't let me assign you know qualities that don't exist there. I, I would not have I would not have been able to have been with her if if she hadn't done so much work on herself to where when she started to let me know about some of the challenges in her life, I was like, really? You don't seem you seem so well adjusted to stuff. Speaking of tough ladies, you know, I mean, I I love and admire her infinitely, and uh, I can't I always tell her she's the best person I've ever met. So, you know, there there of course are things that 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 um, challenges she can come up against where I go, mm, we draw a straight line, and uh, it's hard, it's hard, but she has done an incredible job of making that only about that relationship which i it's beyond impressive and commendable because she doesn't owe that to the world um but that's what she showed me when i came into her life i couldn't believe how and i continue to not understand how well adjusted she is she's just amazing when did your uh bipolar clinical depression begin to present itself uh so i I remember, so I was, I kind of look at it like this. I was in a long-term relationship up until the age of, or just like five years, up until I was like 31, 32. Mm-hmm. 
then, you know, I got to LA when I was like 20 years old and work. I'm just obsessed with continuing to work. My longtime manager with whom I've been since even before I moved here, it's been like, I don't know, it's like 28 years now. So she's like, so long as I keep you working, <laughs> everything will be fine. I think she saw mm -hmm. in me that, you know, maybe she's some shit that I couldn't see yet. But I, there was a lot of, there was a lot to chew on, a lot to keep me busy. And then uh, I remember being like 31, 32 and starting to be re like really alone. I had, you know, I had my friends and stuff and that was cool. And I would get home to Vancouver whenever I could and go and literally for me, I would, I'm not a vacation guy. I would just go home and, and stay with mom and dad and love being around them and go, you know, and cook and go grocery shopping and go hang out with my brother's family, my sister's family and stuff. Sit through that. And then, uh, but um, I, I, um, I think it was, you know, it was 31, 32, 33. And then I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm really alone. And then it, it got, it's, then it started to turn into depression and I didn't know what it was. And I was 35 when I finally, I, I got a, oh, I had a shrink right away um, when I was 31, 32. And I found that to be so great. And the relationship that I was in, my ex encouraged me to go to to um, to be with a shrink. And we had taken a break. She's like, I encourage you to go talk to a shrink. I did. And, and was it, the break uh, affected or informed by uh, your struggles? Mm, I think it was, I mean, I, it, was, it was both of us. I'm sure I was no treat, okay. but it was both of our, I think it was just, it was time. Okay. And we we totally remained friendly and, and uh, stayed in each other's lives for a while just as friends. But going to a, uh, my therapist after that, I was like, oh, this should be a permanent break <laughs> was, yeah. was what came out of it, which I feel like, you know, that wasn't her, probably wasn't what she was uh, hoping for to happen. And uh, I was tired. And um, so that's what happened. And um, I really loved therapy. It became the highlight of my week because of the pain that I was in. So another five years later, I decided to, you know, so I, I did not have a psychiatrist. I talked to my, my GP here in L.A., and he, he got me on some Wellbutrin. Mm -hmm. didn't really work for me. I did it for like 11 months, felt pretty foggy, and stayed away from it until I, I tried to – I guess my shrink and I stopped working together in like 2006 and then, uh, no, no, no. What am I saying? Was it 2000? What am I saying? 2000. And, so I was 31, 32 in 2007 and then it was 2011. I remember I was, I remember because I was, anyway. Mm. Um, uh, and at that point after he had moved offices and he kind of thing and my insurance was like, okay. And he was like, well, maybe, maybe down the road. Mm -hmm. I just stayed away from therapy for a while, which was a mistake. And so then I got really depressed and then there was this sort of. And, and hold that thought. Uh, what did that look like? It, it, it could be best described by my now wife when she came into my life four years ago and her cute little dog, her little dog Ronnie, ran around the house a bit and came back and was like, looked like a Roomba. She had picked up all this dust and shit. And she's, 
you know, Molly, my wife, she says, well, this guy just needs some love, right? So I was kind of, you know, my buddies would make fun of my house <laughs> because when are you going to get rid of that fucking giant archaic TV? And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is one of the first, you know, HD. They didn't even make a 1080 DPI back then. It's like this thing, this giant coffin in the sort. And then I, all right, I got a new TV and then move it to the other side and it stays there. Or the, uh, here's something disgusting, the carpet. I've been in my, I was fortunate enough to buy my house years ago. So, you know, the carpet in the bedroom was like, ugh, like maybe this needs, there was like a track, you could tell like bed to the bathroom, bed out the front door. Like there was these two. A well-worn two, path. Yeah, this fork in the road of, of existence. And it, it was, you know, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a guy. I like my, um, I'd like to think that I have a, a, uh, a style when it comes to my home. I like rustic mixed with the, the, uh, with the modern, but, um, I, it was definitely, it was definitely, I know that I was spending a lot of, there were a lot of, okay. You know, we're talking about depression. There were a lot of days where you're just laying on the bed for until 10 PM and then going like, what the fuck, mm-hmm. you know? And then the grocery stores are closed and you're like eating a hot dog at seven 11 and working on things, trying to work trying to come up with creative shit and sort of like doing that until three or four in the morning. Um, and, and what were some of the greatest hits going through your head greatest hits. during, during this time thoughts about yourself projecting down the road into the future, if things are going to change or never change or I, I had a pretty bleak outlook and um, I, yeah, I had a very bleak outlook, but I just, you know, once I, like, once I decided, okay, I gotta get. I, I had this. I had this other therapist at the time, and and he said, he kept telling me, you you should go see this psychiatrist. She's great, and he and he wouldn't push it, and it took like six months, and then I was like, well, let me see which ones are directly covered by my insurance. Uh, well, and I didn't like any of them, and I felt like they were pill pushers and they weren't really listening to me. They were just talking about meds and shit. And I was like, fuck this. And I'm trying to, you know, I'm reading this and that I'm practicing a lot of gratitude. I'm, I'm meditating. I'm doing yoga. I was always off at the beach trying to send my troubles out into the water and shit and was alone a lot, even though I didn't need to be, um, wasn't not really healthy relationships with women, like just kind of, not available, mm-hmm. not taking anyone seriously, not in a place where I really felt like I was uh, the best version of myself. So I f- sort of felt like, well, the people I'm attracting, I don't know that I want to start a family with. And that had everything to do with me, with my, with seeing myself. And I finally went to this psychiatrist and I remember my aforementioned manager's she saw something in me and she goes, she said something that I'll never forget. She goes, you just don't, you don't have to white knuckle it through life, Will. Because I will, I was tough, just tough. And that's it. Just fucking tough. Even if there's no joy, I'll be tough and I'll project joy. I'll bring joy to my work mm-hmm. because it does make me happy to laugh and goof around and be silly. Uh, I had a podcast at the time that was very therapeutic for me because I could just be silly and goof around and we would record every three weeks and get a, get a couple in the, in the, in the can. 
Um, and that was like my thing. And, um, but she was like, you don't have to white knuckle it through life. Uh, so I went to this psychiatrist and here's what she said. We did, we did a session. She goes, do you want to, what do you think? Do you want to, I said, uh, I don't know. She goes, would you come back and do another session? I said, yeah. At the end of the second session, I decided, okay, I'll, what do you want to put me on? Because somewhere during that session, I just said, give it to me straight. What do you see? And I had explained everything to her, my lack of function, laying in the bed. You know, I'm still in the same house. So when I look out the right to the, out the window, there's these fucking trees across the street. And I looked at the trees not too long ago now. I was like, oh, that's nice. They look nice. Swing in the wind. Those trees were the only thing I could see outside of a prison for a while. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like they became that visual that's just imprinted in my head and immediately made me sad because it's it's 4 p.m. and I can't get out of bed. It's 8 p.m. and I can't get out of bed and it gets dark and you're dicking around on your phone or you're working on something silly and you're looking out the window and you're just seeing that and you're like, fuck, man. It so, almost feels like it's mocking yeah, you yeah like look oh. at us waving in the wind yeah. people walking by us and look <laughs> right. at you yeah. you fucking sad fuck the old, there were a few times where i'm like uh no one else is awake i'd like to go across the street right now with a chainsaw and uh <laughs> if i knew what i was doing so i can keep it clear of any other homes take those fucking trees out or at least climb halfway up and start pruning the shit out of the huge branches um i uh this this psychiatrist said to me I said, what do you see? She goes, you're severely depressed. And I think if you don't, she goes, look, you can do all the, all the, she didn't call it woo woo shit, but you can do all of the gratitude and the meditation and stuff. If you have diabetes and you don't take your medication, you're going to die. So she goes, I see you grinding to a halt and just not being able to function. I I, I will get my shit together and go to work. Mm -hmm. Even if I had two or three hours of sleep. I will go to work, and I pride myself on what I do. Uh, I, I'm I'm going to I'm going to do a great job, God damn it! And nothing's going to get in the way of that. But I certainly wasn't feeling much joy doing it, and I certainly was like my career, this and that. I'm not where I want to be. Feeling all that stuff, but when the camera's on, I I cannot not absolutely give it the you know my best and go like this is really funny and blah 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 and i love working with everyone and it was a joy but it was also like my manager says white knuckling so when she said that i believed her and i'll tell you i (laughs) i she put me on on a couple of things and I, i it was insane i went um i went for lunch with a friend and i told her i go you know i'm on this stuff and I just got on it this morning. Oh, wow. How? And then at a certain point, I was like, I got to go. She's like, why? I'm like, I think I'm going to pass out. I'm having, like, I, I need a nap. I am not a nap guy. Like I said, bipolar too. You're, I'm revving all the time. All of a sudden, I needed a nap. And I'm, I will never forget this. It felt like the pressure was just like there were doors and windows opening in my mind, in my dome in my physical head too like i the meds made it possible for all of the work and any of the positive feelings that i want to you know live live to come out a bit and i started to feel better 
almost immediately because I started taking these crazy naps and I would like, I literally would take my meds and like 15 minutes to a half hour later have this weird like shaky yawn almost like this weird full body shiver and then I would sleep. <laughs> I, I feel like, you know, just this was my feeling. That but, my body was thirsting for it. Yeah, but it, and it sounds like a, a restorative sleep rather than in an avoidance sleep. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. My brain needed rest. It needed to be healed, and and I felt like it was you know the sponge, you know whatever, getting soaked in water or that blue matrix gel. Um, it was it was um. Yeah, it was awesome. And so, and I started working again. Like I, I had a horrible 2014-15 uh, where I was like, you know, barely working and couldn't get my shit together for anything and, you know, really had my, my manager and agent go like, oh, maybe you shouldn't do this job and blah, blah, blah. Or I'm worried if you go off on location to shoot this or whatever. 2016, th- I took the meds at the end of 2015. And 2016, the first gig that I did I was like, I had to go off and and, uh, shoot it. We were like in the Arctic for five weeks and I was worried. Once I got there, I was like, I was worried because I was like, am I even going to, can I do this? Like, am I? And you're going to the fucking, was it summer or winter? It was uh, spring going into winter. Oh, sorry. Spring going into summer. So that's good. It was fine. There were a couple days where I was like, there's a 50 below. Like it was insane. Like your face freezes and shit. But, um, uh, it was, uh, aside from it being the most inspired, wonderful movie, uh, that I couldn't believe that I was a part of. And it kind of, this is a separate story, but it kind of changed the way I look at what I do. But, uh, that might've had a lot to do with the fact that I was open and ready for that. Um, it might've been any movie that, that you, when you go off on location and you make this little family, you know what I mean? Albeit this was a very, uh, it was a lovely true story and all this stuff about these incredible kids and this teacher and rah, rah, rah. What's the name of the movie? It's called The Grizzlies. Okay. Uh, it was about this uh, town called Kugluktuk that had a bad, you know, you know, bad uh, social problems with the kids and there was a suicide issue and stuff. And then this. Inuit? Uh, yeah. And then, the, and then uh, this, this teacher named Russ came into the, uh, came into the town, was just like a. He like got this, you know, he got this job. He's coming fresh out of University of Saskatchewan. Real guy, lives in British Columbia. Anyway, incredible movie with incredible young people. And Miranda Depensier, uh, the director, workshopped these kids and took these kids that all wanted to do this stuff and made them real actors. And it was unbelievable. And we all learned. <laughs> like one of the other, like the only other guy, there was myself, Ben Schnetzer and Boo Boo Stewart were the only ones coming from America. And we're like, well, we're amateurs. This is unbelievable to watch these kids. So that was a lovely thing for me to be a part of, and it came along at the right time. But also, I was able to work. I was able to function again. And, uh, man, I was out there. You, you weren't white-knuckling it. Not at all. I was out there so happy to be there. I keep, you know, I'll say to this day, like, uh, the Arctic has a magnet in it. It was a beautiful place to be a part of. I missed it. When I left, I got to come home to L.A. for a week in the middle of it and, like, did not want to be here and mm-hmm. was kind of like, who wants what? You want some salami? Let me, you know, we're just working on the contraband and bringing stuff back, peanut butter cups. So, um, and then you get back there and I was like, oh, this is great. Going for long walks and shit mm-hmm. and uh, the people there are so nice and so 
differently, you know, they're so different socially than the, than the rest of Canada, even certainly the rest of North, North America. And it's such a unique culture. So uh, that was great. But I was, yeah, in 2016, things started to come together. And I, and I, you know, I still, I still deal with it. It was after that that I was diagnosed uh, bipolar two, which I try to stay away from the labels because nowadays I'm just like oh, whatever. I'm bipolar two. I don't even like I'm. Right. I, I have a again. I have this wonderful wife that I'm with, where to where it's like, you know, I want to grow with her and be better and better and better. And I've learned so much from being with her to where oh, there's not a whole lot now to where I'll get excited about anything i already didn't like the whole i hate being fucking yelled at i don't like being yelled at that's from my childhood and but i but i could yell because i'll yell back you know if you yell at me hey i can yell too that's not even that's not a part of me anymore because it's because how to me it's like it's idiotic to not want to be yelled at and still go there you're just traumatizing yourself yeah. And whoever's in front of you, of course. So, look, I, you know, it, it's at this point, it's like, and like I said, I've never shared that on wax. My friends know, some of my family knows, but again, they're not listening to this. And uh, I, I, it's like nothing. It's nothing. I don't, and and that's another part of the reason that why I'm so happy to be here to just to help to destigmatize it. Because everybody's got something. We've all got something. And if we didn't have it before, we've picked it up over the past few years. Everybody. You know, there's just so many people. There's so few people that are like, everything's cool. And we hate those people. But, (laughs) you know, it's like, so I I try to completely ignore the labels. Certainly my old man was a flew in the face of what. A, the description of someone, someone who's bipolar, he had his episodes. Those were episodes. That was scary when I was a kid. But the it, mania or the depression mania, or both? Mostly yeah. mania. Uh, what did that look like? Oh, you know, different <laughs> <laughs> than he was normally. You know, again, my mom Aggressive? Yeah, aggressive, but not, but not like violent. Um, Intense? In super intense. Sometimes it was really happy. Sometimes he would do weird shit. Like that can be as uncomfortable as somebody being yeah. angry. When you're a kid and you see your dad like getting like super, it was uh, one time he bought this fucking little car, saying we're gonna restore this little car. I'm like, you don't know anything about restoring a car. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like 13. He bought this little Spitfire Triumph, like this I little those. cherry red yeah. convertible two seater, going. And then when you're 16, like, we'll restore this car together. I'm like, this is not my old man. This is yeah. this. And it was terrifying. And it was always a representation of that. It sat there under a tarp for a while and he finally sold it. But, you know, by the way, I'm 13 and he buys this car. By the time I'm 14, 15, like, I'm, I'm playing football and I'm huge. And I'm like, I'm not fitting in this thing when I'm 16. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is, you know, my first car was a 1974 Ford LTD. You know, it was like this oh, literally yeah, the size of a pontoon boat. Yeah. So, I, I, what? What are you doing? And that was terrifying. Or, you know, he would do weird shit. Like, my old man was like, we we ordered pizza once a year. Okay. My mom's Italian. She would make pizza three or four times a year. That was great. But... 
He'd order pizza once a year. It had to be from the place in town, La Strada. It was our neighbor, Beppe. He was another Italian immigrant. He had to talk on the phone to Beppe to order it, and Beppe had to deliver it. That's how special that was. But when my old man had an episode, he would come home with like food and this and that. Oh, I bought these uh, look, hamburger French fries. My mom's like, are you fucking crazy? She pinched every penny. Super frugal Italian, you know. Uh, still that World War II uh, mm-hmm. sensibility. And it's like <clears throat> shit like that would, yeah, would terrify you as a kid because my sense of stability, my – my, they were my rock. I, I still, I, I think about it a lot. And now that we're planning a family, it's like, it's like I loved that. I loved that I knew where my, where I stood when my head hit the pillow at night. You know what I mean? I, I have that wonderful advantage. I, I grew up in two houses growing up. You know, I, when I hear about kids having to move all the time, I can't even, I can't even. I can't yeah, even, making a new set of friends. I have and, no and idea. The new kid, and yeah, forget it's it. Got to be. Yeah, I have a lot of a lot of sympathy for that. When you hear that story from adults, it's just like I don't know what I would do without my my friends who knew me over years and years and years. You know, so yeah, the mania was there. <laughs> like one time, he got super pissed at my uncle John, my mom's brother, who was like. You know, he was the funniest guy in the world. Like, he's the Joe Pesci. Like, mm. the funniest guy. And to see my old man get pissed at him, and little Uncle Joe, hey, 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 calm down, you know. Like, mm-hmm. it was, that was terrifying. Because my dad didn't get pissed at anybody. He didn't get pissed at anybody. I, and I picked that up from him. Like, what? A, my silence is your reward. Like, I'm not reacting to you. If I don't give a fuck about you, that means I don't give a fuck about you. So... It was very different. It was mm-hmm. it 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 gave me and look, those times were not my father. My fa I know who my father is, and he's an incredible guy, and I I mold myself after him in in many ways, and now I see him in me since he's been gone, and what he gave me. So it, it, it's like I I'll sit here and I, you know a few years ago maybe I wouldn't want to talk about this because I don't think it's. I don't think it's right, whatever. Right, feeling like you're throwing him under the bus. Exactly. And that's the totality of who he is rather than, it, than this was a struggle of his. This was a struggle of his, and, and, it was, and it's also a, a disorder. It, yeah. is, it is a disorder. It's, not, it's a chemical imbalance. And I also had the advantage of having a doctor explain this to me once I could, once I could kind of understand it in my tweens. Um, I'm, I'm lucky. And he he was uh, what a what an amazing blueprint the guy left me in a lot of ways. <laughs> I never would have thought that he'd be leaving me a blueprint to deal with the same kind of thing that he dealt with. Right. And but has mania has. been an issue? You talked uh, previously about how you didn't nap. You were always kind of buzzing, but it, would it get to the point where people noticed and were like, you know, you're. Why are you buying this Triumph right. Spitfire? Right. Yeah. Well, you can't fit in that fucking car. Why'd you buy the new Mini? I don't know. It's cool. Uh, so, uh, no, no. Actually, I the the yes and no. I've never had a manic episode. I'm I'm fortunate enough to have never had what's called a manic episode. From what I understand, that's the difference between one of the differences between bipolar one and bipolar two. But manic, yeah, like zippy, zoomy. Could stay up, 
could work all night and then get three hours of sleep. And that's not considered a manic episode? That's just considered, what, hypomania? Not that the label matters, right. but... I don't know. I, yeah. I don't know. Again, I've just been told, like, you're bipolar too. You've never had a manic episode. I've gotcha. had, you know, I've had your, uh, you know, hit the ground crying, not knowing where the fuck you are kind of uh, uh, episode, I guess. Right. But never a manic one. They never looked like what I've seen the old man go through. So mostly for me, it's been depression. But- there is absolutely mania if you are bipolar in any way. I don't know. I'm mm-hmm. not. I'm not. I'm no expert, of course. But um, zoomy. I was pretty fucking zoomy. We. I remember this one movie we shot where we were shooting long days, and there was a lot to do, and we had like a little competition between a few castmates of like how little how little sleep are you getting, and how productive can you be still, and and you know. I'm I'm proud to say I've never done anything. I love marijuana, but I've never done any hard drugs of any kind. And because, uh, <laughs> if I may, I know that my heart would explode, and then that would be, oh, he was a huge cokehead, and I'd be laying in my coffin going, it was just one time. I did, I swear to God. But um, so coffee, literally coffee all day. But I got they go how'd you I go I got you beat today. I got you beat what two hours? I got two hours of sleep. And we were outside all day, and it was physical humor and just going off. It's that kind of shit where I was like, I could work. I could do – I'm kind of a perfectionist with some things. So if I've got my hands on something – look, if I'm acting, I want take after take, and I'm, I can be kind of annoying that way. Like I'm like, it was good. And the director goes, shut up. Get that look off your face. I'm always like, was that okay? Like mm-hmm. I did something red. And – um but if my hands are on things, I am, yeah, I can be kind of a perfectionist and zoomy, super zoomy, which now mostly because of the meds, I feel like it's like, okay, I don't have to be zoomy. And I get, and this is a wonderful thing, I get uh, tired of things and go, okay, I've worked on that enough. I want to be able to work on it tomorrow. Yeah, That would have never been there before. <laughs> Was food ever an issue? Was it ever? How much time he got? <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, where, how, what are the origins of that and where are you at with it today? Uh, it's always been an issue my entire life, still is. Uh, it's my addiction. Um, I, you know, I like to joke like, oh, it's okay to have one vice, but, you know, two or three, then you're getting into problems. I, I you know... Let me preface it by saying, like, drinking was never a big deal to me. I think because of the Italian thing, there was there's wine on the table. I would put a little wine in my Seven Up as a kid on the dinner table. Very European, you know, kind of relationship with alcohol. Like it's here, so I didn't give a shit about drinking at all. Never drank in my teens. Didn't really get into drinking a beer or a vodka, vodka tonic with my buddies until I was twenty one, twenty two, twenty three. But I could, I could binge. I could go ape shit with my pals and get, you know, blackout drunk. Sure. But I didn't have to do it again for another couple months. That's fine. Never got into drugs. And I think that that's because I was, um, sort of like a good kid, kind of socially just afraid of what that would do. Mm -hmm. Um, afraid of what that could do to my life, afraid of being quote unquote, a loser as I was 
told I would be, you know what I mean? If you're, if you're following that shit and I, you know, I was very into you know, football and, and the, the dramatic arts in high school and, and working in actual show business and stuff. And I saw some of that in actual show business going like, well, this is, you're going nowhere. You're going to fucking, and, and people are going to find out and your reputation is going to be ruined. And that's a big part of our business. That wasn't it. Food is, was it. And I think, you know, there's a weird sort of, um, it, it, it sort of took on an odd currency growing up because mom could say, don't eat. And mom could reward you with food. And also there wasn't food around. I like to, I, I joke about this cause it's like, you know, my, you open my fridge as a kid and it's all this stuff that only mom can turn into food. There's like mm-hmm. a fish and like a bunch of vegetables and a chicken. And then in the cupboard, there's some pasta. And then at night, it's like this incredible three course Italian meal. So I remember I had a buddy like, you know, my old man used to make wine like a lot of Italian immigrants. <laughs> he would make this wine. <laughs> he go off and buy tons of grapes. He had this press, big barrels, of, you know. And he had this wine and we had this the wine cellar part of the, the carport and garage. It was this whole thing he built off. And, uh, you know, one of my delinquent pals came over and was like, well, let's take a bottle. Let's steal the bottle. I'm like, you can fucking have a bottle of wine. Let's go to your house where you have hostess ringdings and chips in Tupperware because you have self-control. Like, it's fucking crazy. Your parents aren't even checking in. Right. And you don't care. You're some skinny kid. You don't give a shit. You eat sugary cereal in the morning. You don't even, you don't go for a second. That box would be gone in my house. Forget it. So there was this odd sort of currency to food. And then I feel like, so yeah, I was always self-medicating with food. What what would the feeling be uh, starting with the thought of, I'm going to go eat this thing. Would you, would you feel high fantasizing about yeah. The thing, talk about that. From from the thought popping in your mind of I'm going to go get a box of Cocoa Krispies uh, yeah. to all the way through you've just eaten an entire box. Right. Walk us through that. Uh, it's a drug. And that's the end of my story. No, it's like it, it, it is. It's, in, in terms of you talking to yourself, what you're feeling in your body. It, it's comfort. There's something... You know, I'm an emotional eater. So it's like I eat when I'm I eat to celebrate. That's part of the Italian thing. Like I I I need dinner sometimes to be a sort of a like it needs to be a bit of a, a little bit of an event. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Sometimes uh other times it doesn't have to be. I do a lot of cooking, so I like to cook, you know, I'll make my wife's and she cooks too, but like I'll make my wife something She'll want pasta and I'll make, you know, pasta just for her. And I'll take so much pride in making this pasta just like mom used to make and blah, blah, blah. And I'll eat some of it um, in the kitchen before I give it to her. And she knows. And she's listening now. Hello, honey. I love you. And um, but then she'll hide things in the house that I can't have. Um, You know, anyway. So for me, it's like. Sometimes food needs to be a bit of a um, a bit of a ritual. It needs to be, you know, dinner needs to be a thing, and that's the. I think that's the positive side of emotional eating. The other side is the, and that's comforting. But the other side is like the comfort, the drug, the. I'm sad. 
and now I'm chewing and I'm angry and now I'm chewing. I feel. Is it a numb feeling? Is it a euphoric feeling? It's euphoric. It's a bit, it's like, I don't know, man. It's, it's, it's weird. I think it's weird. I think that, I I think that being a bit chubby has always been my, whether I, I don't want to be like, I work out more recently been like, I always, I came up lifting weights. Okay. I lifted weights because I played football in my teens and shit. You look like you could still play football. Oh, You're, you've got some fucking muscle, dude. <laughs> I, I, I always loved lifting weights. And then I, when I, I briefly mentioned that 2014, 15 were a bad time. I stopped lifting weights and I haven't been lifting weights um, consistently up until literally about six months ago. And then Molly and I, Molly used to be a trainer. My, my, my wife used to be a trainer. She's in incredible shape. She's never pushed me. I'm, I'm always kidding myself going for long walks with the dog or, you know, uh, I liked yoga for a while, but I stayed, I wasn't really in the gym like I should have been because for me, and I'll get back to the eating, but for me, that was so, that was so mental. As a kid, I had football. I could exhaust myself physically. Being, you know, lifting weights, pushing heavy weights, and then being on the treadmill for a half hour, 45, or an hour, man, I feel awesome when I'm done. I feel mm-hmm. so, it really helps me metaphysically. But I, so I've always wanted to be, it, it, my point in bringing that up is this. Why am I working my ass off and not completely finishing the job nutritionally? Because anyone will tell you, nutrition is 80% of it, 90% mm-hmm. of it. You can't just work out. You'd have to work out all day and night. So if I have something shitty, it's going gonna, it's gonna to usurp the work that I did. I sort of, uh, again, even thinking about it for a little bit is kind of painful and I get bored. So I don't think about it much. But I feel like being a little bit chubby has always been my way to keep people like away from me in a way. Now there's no keeping my wife away. She loves me. And, and, um, she doesn't care that I'm, you know, I'll be like, am I getting a little puffy? Am I a little fat? What's going on? Take a look at me. She's like, you look fine. Come on. Tell me the truth. You could be doing better. Do you think you could be doing better? Yes, I could. Okay. Thanks for being honest with me. Right. Mm -hmm. But she loves me no matter what. So what am I, who am I keeping away? I want to be close with her all the time. Um, There's, there's something about eating that's directly related to, I don't know what it's like. Fuck you. Fuck you. I'm going to eat like, fuck you. I'm going to have something to eat. And you know, like, like it feels good. It just, it feels good. And then, and it's, it's, I also think for many of us, our vices are a sense of control. Yeah. Cheers. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Uh, yeah, yeah, you can, yeah, you can control it. Like I said, I dig pot. I never, I did not smoke weed my entire youth. And I only, I tried it for the first time at the age of 36. I'm 48. And and then for for like five years, I never really messed with it. And now the past five years or whatever, it's like, oh yeah, I really like it. I smoke weed on the weekends. And that to me is control. I, I do like it. I think there's many benefits and I feel like it helps me creatively i'll dream up all sorts of weird stuff i can't write while i'm 
stoned. That's a disaster. But I'll write things down and then later revisit them. That to me is control. Being able to, <laughs> you know, like uh, alter myself a bit and have a great time and go see mm-hmm. this movie that's awesome or really sucks and have a, <laughs> a hilarious time with it. Food is, yeah, it's very much about control. And I, and I do feel like, yeah, it's been, it's been like, you know, I don't know. I have, obviously I haven't really figured it out or I would be like, I'm a large human being, but I, I carry a lot of weight. Even if I got into, you know what? I should say this. This is actually weird. So in 1999, spring of 1999 to the spring of 2000, I lost 200 pounds. Um, what? Yeah, I lost 200 pounds. And I always say that I missed the last 50, so I gained it back. But um, So I'm like three bills, right? A little over probably right now. But I, I went from, I was 450 pounds, and you would look at me and just go, what are you, 310? And I'd go, yeah, because I could carry it because I, I have big You're muscles. You're 6'3". Yeah, I'm 6'3", and I'm, I'm large boned and you know and thick and like i said it always lifted weights stopped moved to la blew up to went from 350 to 450 pretty quickly went from you know get out of out of high school i was playing a lot of football i was like 280 290 and you know and and athletic and and everything was wonderful and then i got to la and i started putting on weight was 450 got to a point where i was like okay that's enough found this incredible trainer Lost 200 pounds in a year. Did it mostly, I did it clean. I, I will say the second six months I did uh, hydroxy cut. You remember that mm-hmm. stuff? It was like there was commercials for it. It Back then it had ephedrine in it, which is very dangerous and the FDA banned it. But for a while you could have ephedrine in your hydroxy cut. When you said, do your friends ever notice that you're a little zoomy? When I was on hydroxy cut, when I'd cycle on to hydroxy cut for like, you'd do it for a little while and you take a week off and give your liver a rest. And my friends would go, you're being an asshole. Are you on hydroxy cut right like, Yeah. So that really helped to really cleave off the last of that brown fat. But my, my body had turned into a fat furnace. My metabolism was working like crazy. My body really took to it. I was young. I did not know how to eat. This trainer taught me how to eat. I would work out two, sometimes three times a day. I was addicted to it. I was extremely intense about it, and I lost 200 pounds in a year. That that really uh, messed things up. At the end of it, it was wonderful. It was great. I'm here because of it. I don't think I would have survived without it, of course. Um, but it 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 was weird. Like you know, before that, didn't get much attention from women. You know, I was I was a larger guy. I didn't like myself. Let's put it that way. Um, shame was yeah. your friend. Yeah. And even like, you know, high school and stuff, I never really, I never like, it, you know, I was very well liked, bunch of class mm-hmm. clowns and all that stuff and doing all the plays and making videos and silly stuff, captain of the football team and all that shit. But I would never try for a girlfriend or if I did, it was very, very rarely. I did a couple times in high school. You get shot down. I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. Um, it wasn't until well into my 20s that I was like, okay, I'm a little more comfortable. So as a big guy, I was like, you're not doing that. Then I lose all this weight. They're looking at me like I'm someone else. I have to look in the mirror to remind myself that I've lost the weight. I would literally sit there. I remember in my apartment, I used to look sideways. There was a mirror and I would go, 
as a when I was when I was four fifty, I go. I wish I had a jawline. I wish I had a jawline. You know. And I would look and I would see myself at four fifty, and I would get bummed out. And then I literally, I'll remember this. I would be sitting there at two fifty, and I go. I wish I had a jawline. And I'd look and I'd see this other dude looking back at me because I've been lifting like crazy. And you know, and I had to have two surgeries to remove skin, and and all that stuff. Um, and it was gnarly and it spat me out the other side. I remember saying to my doctor, who's still my doctor, I just want a fucking sandwich. I just want, can I have some pasta now? I wanted my life. I wanted to be a normal person. I wanted a normal relationship with food like other people. This didn't fix it. Right. It still hasn't. Losing the weight was a wonderful thing, but I haven't been able to keep it completely off. And in recent years i've been 350 so then what's that you lost four you lost 200 pounds from 450 and then you're back up 100 i've been 360 you know i think that's the most i've been since losing that weight but i'm always trying to be around 290 right and at 290 i'm good like Mm -hmm. i'm you know at 250 was insane i actually was like closer to 260 and had 10 pounds of of uh of skin removed so just under nine pounds of skin removed over two surgeries. So I was then I was 250, and I was like, looked like an NFL linebacker. And, but it didn't cure the food thing. And it, when I say it kind of messed things up, it just sort of scrambled things with regard to my self-image. I did not understand what the opposite sex was looking at. So I didn't do the work mentally. And my depression was yet to come. And I was still um, medicating myself with food. And I still do. So it takes a lot regardless of, and this is just me talking out of my ass, but it feels like with an addiction, it really, you know, when I hear alcoholics talk about, yeah, it's every day, man. And you, you, you empathize and you go like, that's strength to have to face that demon down every day or someone who has, and I'm thinking about more traditional quote unquote addictions, drugs and alcohol, you know, food I feel is, is a little different. Yeah. Cause you got to dance with a gorilla three times a day. That's right. It's, you know, I don't think about, I've been sober almost 20 years Yeah, and I don't, I'd say it's been 19 and a half years since I felt the craving to wow. drink or get high. That's great. Um, but I imagine if my struggle was food, that would be completely different. Yeah. It's a little weird because you, you, you know, the only thing you can kind of, what works for me is like, I look at the positive things in my life and I look at the, you know, my wife and I have like a, (laughs) she has a much healthier, you know, way of doing things obviously, because I'll just be like, come on, it's Saturday. Let's, can we please have a fucking pizza? All right, fine. You know, she wants pizza too. Everybody wants pizza. So, but for me, it's like, if you are taking account of the positive and you're like i want to for me sometimes it's like i want to look good i want to look better in that project i'm working on and that's Mm -hmm. coming up in x amount of weeks or whatever then you'll 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 watch it a little bit more but these all these things all come from positivity and self-love and that's the hard thing to pull off consistently so and i also think compassion when we miss the mark that has been one of the most important things for me, in other addictions, other than drugs and alcohol, yeah. um, has been, you know, porn used to be a, a, a one. And I 
you know, early in recovery, I would just shame myself for falling off the wagon. And then I got to the point where I was like, buddy, you're doing the best you can. Cool. Yeah, you missed the mark. You know, what might have triggered this? Let's make a note to self and be aware of that next time. And that actually helped me move away yeah. from from those compulsions. But I don't kid myself into thinking that it's it's never going to rear its head again. Cool. I just try to try to keep it in the just today and try to be kind to myself no matter what, whether I'm missing the mark or hitting the mark. That's awesome. Yeah, that's that's it's key. I, you know, we we sometimes, you know, we practice what we preach. Sometimes people will, you know, I could easily start and uh, uh, like a, a big dude, evil army of the night if I wanted to, because uh, there's all these guys that like hit me up, like DM me on Instagram. And it's like they know that we're part of the same fraternity. So there's a shorthand and they come and they go, Will, you know, and that's what they sound like, Will. Um, no, they come to me and they say, Will, I, you know, this and that, and I have my struggles with food and, you know, I'm getting married to this, or I want to get smaller for this, or, you know, I feel like I'm going to miss out on my kids and, and uh, this scares me and that and my, or my partner, this or work that. And I'll be like, you know, I'll, when I, when I, when I write back, um, I try to write back when I see these, you know, um, but, and when I write back, I'm just like, I'm like, dude, like it's enough that you're, you're on this and you're reaching out to someone who, you know, has these same things. You can just tell. And, and still, you know, I'm a stranger, so you're taking a chance and that's a big thing. I go, it's, and I, and what I talk about is my, I talk about my failures when I talk to those mm-hmm. people. I just go like, you might be looking at me going, well, oh, he's really figured it out. It's like, dude, that's what I'm presenting. Right. You know what I mean? I'm not that guy. Uh, we all fuck up. And I say, you got to get up the next day as, as much as it sucks and as, as bummed on yourself as you are. Like you might have really, uh, uh, and uh, I've gone on, you know, my podcast and, you know, Ethan Suplee? I don't. Okay. Uh, Ethan has changed his body. We were both like, when we finally met, it was like we're brothers of some kind because we we're both very large uh, and he has done incredible things to lose his weight. We had the same surgeries. We have the same stories and, and, um, um, and, you know, it's like I, I went on his podcast a little while ago and was talking about we just started comparing stories of like binge eating. I'm like, oh, I'm out with friends and then things. And then I'm like heading home. And it's like, well, when was the last time I actually had a Whopper? That would, And and I've got this thing where I haven't gone through a fast food drive through since 2012. That doesn't mean I can't walk in. That's okay. Right. So and then it's like then you go to 7-Eleven and, and, you know, the story of like you haven't really – you're not a piece of shit until you're sitting in your truck uh, eating Ben and Jerry's with a with a switchblade. You know what I mean? Like right. I'll eat it with a pocket knife, sitting there like carving off pieces of <laughs> Ben and Jerry's. Anyway, I bring Ethan up to to say this sort of thing and to say that I say it on I said it on his he has this podcast American Glutton that deals with uh, these sorts of issues and he's turned into he's completely shredded and it's mm-hmm. it's insane. He looks like a Viking. Um, he's, he killed his clone, as he says, um, uh, I'll talk to these, these people and say, you know, dude, I've fucked up so hard. You just got to get up, like get up the next day. If I'm telling you, if you can go for a walk, whatever it is, 10 minutes, 
15, 20, mm-hmm. 30, you, you're going to feel a little bit better about yourself. Give that give that to yourself. Move Please. your feet. If you're it's hitting such me, a big part yeah. of recovery. Just move. And I don't necessarily mean uh, literally, although in this case, obviously, it's right. literally. But do know, it. Do, do it. Do it for a do it for a bit. You hit me up, okay? Do it for me. Just tomorrow, do it for me, yeah. and write me back, and then I might write you back. But uh, yeah, it's a it, food is a food is still a it's still a thing. It's still a thing. But I, you know what? More recently, I've felt pretty good about it. I saw. I just saw a little cut of something I shot last year, and I was sitting there with my wife, and I, this is a thing that I did last year, and they so they sent me a cut of it. And I went, uh, I said, this is my favorite. This is so motivating to me. And again, my wife accepts me no matter what. So it's, it's. I'm like, come on, give me the, tell me I'm bad or tell me I'm good. Right. Like, tell me I look like shit. And I go, I don't look like that right now, do I? And she very clearly said no. And I was like, okay, you know, I've been doing a lot of work. And uh, sometimes it doesn't show. Sometimes there's angles like I'm always on my podcast on Dudesy, I'm constantly adjusting in my chair because we have a monitor. I can see myself and I'm like, I look fat in this fucking chair. And then there's, you know, there's, it, there's, it's on YouTube too. So there's the other cam cameras and you cut to a single and I can see. And then when I watch the show, I'm like, oh, when I turn to Chad, it's all this chub neck on the side. And I just, and then I'm like, I can't, I, I, there's something I want to see. I want to see this one segment and how did that work out? And I'm like, I can't watch this. You know, and then there's something with like great lighting and whatever, and I'm like, I'm really not that fat. I look pretty good. You know, these guys put some lines in my face. Anyway, well, buddy, I appreciate you coming by, and uh, it, it's so nice. To, I mean, um, even though we had met maybe 20 years ago right. briefly, it, yeah, yeah. it is uh, it is nice to sit down and have an in-depth conversation with you. And I think uh, just want to thank you for opening up about uh, a lot of stuff that's, that's hard to talk about. Cheers, Paul. Thanks for having me. And thanks for all the work you do, man. It's awesome to, it's awesome to meet you again and do this with you. Thanks. Loved, loved, loved talking to Will and just got an email from his wife, Molly, who is uh, now going to come on the show. What if she just called him a liar? Just an hour and a half of ripping in, to him just tearing apart his soul make for some compelling podcast let's see what happens carmax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you because at carmax we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car you should love your car That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is from the Psych Ward Experiences survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself A.G., 
why were you hospitalized? I've been cheating on my boyfriend and he found out. I was 22 and had been sleeping with men for money using the website Seeking Arrangements ever since I was 18. Somehow I justified it as not cheating since I didn't actually enjoy the sex. I had to get fucked up just to do it and there was no emotional connection. It was just a means to an end. I completely disregarded how much my actions would hurt him if he ever found out, and when he did find out, he was shattered. And I subsequently fell into a deep depression fueled by shame and self-hatred at a level I had never before experienced in my life. I never felt so alone. I absolutely fucking hated myself. He treated me so well. He surpassed all my standards. He was a sweetheart who was completely blindsided by my selfishness and greed, and I couldn't forgive myself. A few months later, a situation occurred where my best friend stopped talking to me, which broke my heart even further. I felt like everyone I loved was going to eventually leave me because I was such a piece of shit and probably deserved it. For seven months, I did nothing but drink and drug myself into oblivion, and that's exactly what I was doing the night I tried to kill myself. My friend and I had been out at a bar and we got into a fight outside because she didn't want me to drive home intoxicated. I uh, was nine drinks in and still somehow adamant that I could drive home fine, and I was getting pissed that she wasn't letting me go. The fight ended with her pushing me and walking off saying she was done with me and we were no longer friends. So I guess that was the last straw. I went home sobbing and took a bunch of Xanax to try and kill myself, but instantly regretted it the second I swallowed. I started to panic and called another friend who instructed me to try and make myself throw up. When I couldn't, I called 911. The last thing I remember is calling my sister from the ambulance and crying, saying, I'm so sorry. I finally did it. I tried to kill myself. I'm going to the hospital. I'm so sorry. Uh, Describe your experience. I did not handle being committed well at all. I think we got a t-shirt there. I actually thought after all the drugs finally wore off, they were just going to let my parents take me home. I was still pretty dazed and fucked up from my overdose when they wheeled me out onto the unit. I remember accidentally pissing myself when I tried to stand up to go to the water fountain. I was freaking out trying to get the nurses to let me call my school to tell them what happened because I still had a final paper due and didn't want to get a zero for it. That's what I was concerned about. The following morning, a doctor came into my room asking me how long I had been depressed, to which I responded, I'm not depressed. He checked his chart again. You tried committing suicide two days ago, correct? I guess he had a point. He rephrased his question. What's the most pressing symptom you'd like to get rid of? I said, I just want to stop hating myself so much. I need the constant shit talking to myself in my head to stop. So he put me on Prozac, and after only three days, they let me go home. I hated it there. The facility was fine, and the staff were very nice. I just didn't feel like I could start healing while I was being held against my will in a place like that. It was still during COVID, too, so I couldn't even have visitors. I was going stir-crazy. I explained to my team of doctors and social workers that I definitely didn't want to kill myself anymore. I'd made a huge mistake, and I was ready to start fixing things, but not in there. I needed my freedom and to be with my family more than anything. 
So they let me go and set me up in an outpatient program. That's when the healing truly began. I stayed at my sister's for a week, and my mom wouldn't leave my side. I really scared her, which still brings tears to my eyes to think about. But I got sober, and the antidepressants worked. I got better. I'll never forget the first 24 hours after leaving the hospital. Life had never felt so visceral and vivid. Every little thing made me cry with happiness. And And I was just so grateful that I made it out alive. Seeing my cat, taking a shower in my own bathroom, riding in the car with the windows down, talking to my dad in person instead of over the phone for only 10 minutes at a time, hugging my nieces, all the little things you take for granted, felt a thousand times more important now that I had almost lost them forever. I try to carry the same gratitude with me now when I can. Oh my God. What a story of recovery and uh, how sometimes that, you know, that that bottom that seems so, so like this is, oh, this is the end of my life. It's only going to, but that's the thing that we bounce back from and is the starting point for admitting to ourselves we need to try something different. Uh, some more loves from List Lover. I love when my rescue dog, who's five years old, I've uh, had him a bit less than a year, forms new habits that show how he's getting more comfortable in his new home. The latest ones are him snoozing with me in the mornings instead of staring at me, waiting for me to get up. Not eating all his food right away because there's no rush to do that anymore and asking to get picked up even though he still isn't 100% comfortable with that. I love when people tell me that something reminded them of me. It makes me feel so seen and loved, knowing I exist in their lives when I'm not present and that they really know me. Oh, man, do I love that one. I love when a dying plant I've rescued from a bin or my parents' poor care starts to get healthier and grow. I love when I find snacks I didn't know were still in the cupboard, usually falling behind other stuff. Surprise snacks really do taste better. Oh, that's such a good one. That, and the opposite of that is when you think you got more snacks and you go there and they're gone. Tragedy. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a trans woman who calls herself Hep. She identifies as gay. She's in her 20s, says that she was raised in a Uh, Oh, and she specifies under the gay, trans uh, woman interested in women, uh, says that she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, uh, been emotionally abused. Growing up, my mother was struggling with bipolar and was not receiving treatment until I was about 13. Before treatment, she could be incredibly mean and hurtful, but also at times just wonderful. Now she is the sweetest person I know and so loving. It took me a while to come to terms with who she was and who she is now, but we are in a good place in our relationship. I've also had a couple of romantic partners who were emotionally abusive. I didn't think highly of myself in the past and would date people who treated me how I thought I deserved. Any positive experiences with abusers? 
My mother is still in my life and we are very close. She's an amazing and loving person now. Took a long time to come to terms with the past abuse and who she is now, but I'm grateful I have. Oh my God, can I even begin to tell you how much I love that? Darkest thoughts. I want to relapse on opiates. I like how this just took the darkest turn. I want to relapse on opiates at times. I want to kill myself by overdosing. I'm so scared of relapsing, but I don't know if I can believe I can stay sober. Darkest secrets. I started Suboxone again 12 days ago. I'm trying medication-assistant treatment and will be on it long-term. No one knew I was using again. Family and friends thought I've been sober since my last rehab stint three years ago. I didn't even last two months before using again. I hate that I am like this. You know, a friend shared with me about, you know, when relapse happens or you know something where we feel like oh my god i've made a terrible mistake i've let everybody down etc etc this friend of mine said instead of thinking in that black and white term just think of yourself as a car on a highway that has drifted outside its lane and you just need to make adjustments rather than condemning who you are as a person because as I've said many times on the podcast, nobody has ever grown into the person they want to be by shaming themselves. But boy, do we try. Boy, do we fucking try. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I just want to be held. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell my sibling I was using and I'm getting treatment again. I love them so much and just need support right now, but I can't break it to them. I've put them through so much. Well, let me ask you this. What do you think your sibling would want? I'm going to guess they would want to know. So why don't you leave it up to them whether or not they are crushed and would rather have not known or what, whether they're glad to know, painful as it is, that their sibling is in need of their support and is hurting so that they can have a chance to love you? I think the answer is obvious. What, if anything, do you wish for? How to be content? Have you shared these things with others? No, I don't really have anyone to tell. For about six years now, I've really kept friends at arm's length, and new folks that enter my life, I keep further. It's easier to keep an addiction going if there's no one close enough to notice what's going on. It's like you intellectually understand that that is feeding your addiction. Uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? Ashamed. Oh, man, that's that's hard to read. I, I And I so get the shame thing, and I think so many of us get the shame thing. And why we feel shame is more appropriate to heap on ourselves than to heap on other people. Um, I really hope that you can break that that cycle and let people connect to you. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experience? I've, I'm honestly pretty hopeful for medication-assisted treatment to help deal with opiate addiction. I've been to rehab a couple times and detox more on top of that, but I've never lasted more than a few days to weeks. Suboxone 
cuts out the cravings so I have the opportunity to figure out being a functional person in the world outside an institution. I still want to use. It's my default first step of doing just about everything. But that need felt in my bones isn't there. I feel like there's a chance I could stay sober, which is more hope than I had in other treatment programs. I've only been doing this for 12 days, so take it with a grain of salt. Thank you for for sharing that. And I, and I hope that if you do the medication-assisted treatment, you also increase your human connection, your willingness to be vulnerable, to be open and honest and transparent because there is a spiritual, emotional component to addiction. It's not just about the body craving. Um, and for many of us, addressing that emotional and spiritual void helps ease the craving. Meaning and purpose, man. It There is nothing like it. This is an awful moment, uh, awful some moment filled out by a uh, trans man who calls himself Liam. I think we've read some of Liam's uh, surveys. Uh, and Liam writes, Last week I was in therapy talking about my fear of going to new grocery stores when my therapist suggested that I order them online and pick them up. I explained why that would not work so well, and then she continued to say, Well, if you ever go to such and such specific grocery store in this specific part of town. That is where my ex-boyfriend works, and you can tell him that you know me and say, oh, you're her ex, the one that couldn't keep his hands off his co-workers. <laughs> I laugh about it now, but I left her office thinking, what the fuck was that, and why did she give me so many details? And And that, to me, would be a red flag, you know, going back to the listener's question about uh, what you look for in a therapist. That is definitely uh, TMI, as the kids say. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself TJ. Uh, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? At the age of 10, I was molested by an elderly neighbor. At the age of 10, I called the state police who came to take my statement. My assaulter was arrested and immediately released on his own recognizance. My mom and dad came to me and told me he had committed suicide using a shotgun. I felt that I, again, was traumatized hearing the news. My God, how could you not? A few months later, my younger brother and I did some experimental touching but quickly realized this was wrong. My parents found out about this and have brought it up my entire life. As to the sexual assault from the older man, the only therapy I received as a child is a few hours with a Pentecostal with a Pentecostal pastor. I can't imagine that went very smoothly. I carry so much guilt, guilt with allowing myself to be assaulted, guilt for experimenting with my younger brother. While I was very sexually active, 60-plus women, I never experimented with younger individuals after the incident with my brothers. My brother. Uh, not, uh, nor do I have the desire. In fact, the thought of such makes me sick. I've apologized to my brother. I carry so much guilt. I've been in therapy to very little avail. When I was in my 20s, my wife and I separated. We had a six-year-old daughter. Never, ever have I thought anything sexual about her. However, my parents had my daughter and estranged wife over 
for Christmas dinner and left me alone sitting in my apartment just down the road, all alone on Christmas. During dinner, my parents told my wife about what had happened with my brother and the incident with the older man. They convinced her to take my daughter to the pediatrician to see if I had molested her. Obviously, the results were negative, but I was so embarrassed and hurt. To this day, my guilt from my early childhood coupled with the embarrassment of what my parents put my daughter through is overwhelming. My father has passed on and I greatly distance myself from my mother. I don't know how to get rid of the guilt of my childhood and get my mother to admit her behavior was horrendous. Thank you for sharing that. Man, that sounds so um, so difficult uh, because you're not forgiving yourself. Um do you think your brother wants you holding on to that guilt? What do you think your brother wants you to feel? I can't imagine he wants you to feel bad about it. And you have no control over whether or not your mother is going to ever admit. And holding on to that hope is, is a way of being mean to yourself. Um, buddy, I feel for you, man. I feel for you. You know, something that, that, that you might try doing and, you know, maybe run this by um, your therapist, but finding a picture of yourself from when you were 10 years old and talking to him. Be the adult that he needed in his life, the compassion and the love and the understanding that he needed when he was 10. Maybe try that. You know, I talked to a picture of myself around the age when my mom was being creepy with me and I broke down and started crying because I saw that little face, that little 11-year-old face and it broke my heart but it was it was a way for me to stop thinking of myself as a just a short 40-year-old man who should be able to have handled it. So I don't know if that that will help but keep fighting brother. Keep fighting. Sending you some love. Some more loves from List Lover. She writes, I love when I refind a loved piece of clothing in my wardrobe that I forgot I had because I hadn't seen it for a while. Oh, that is a great one, especially if it doesn't stink like the closet. I love it when the crows follow me and my dog on a walk because they finally started to recognize us after giving them treats from time to time. I love that I'm starting to be able to recognize repeated destructive behaviors of mine before I'm very deep in repeating them. For example, I'm starting to recognize seasonal depression symptoms coming before I start thinking I'm losing my mind. Being able to separate those feelings from myself and help myself instead of blame and push myself into feeling worse and worse. Oh man, do I love that one. Such a great tool. Self-compassion, such an amazing tool. I love when my friend tells me about her turbulent love life and it makes me feel very validated because I'm an aromantic person who is not interested in dating at all. I have a bad tendency to second guess everything and think that I'm just a fuck up. So hearing my friend's experiences made it so clear that I just can't relate to the feelings at all. This is a fairly new revelation, so I'm still working on accepting myself as I am and working through all the shame I've kept inside for years. Ah, uh, thank you for sharing those. 
This is a happy moment filled out by our friend Liam again. Uh, and Liam writes, Tonight I went and visited my sister and her son. She is 19 and he is four months old. He is the cutest and happiest baby I have ever met. And she is a wonderful mother. Every time I see her interacting with him, I start to cry happy tears. Something about seeing his pure elation when she tells him that she loves him makes my heart fill and also break. He busts out the biggest smile I've ever seen on something so small. His eyes squint with joy and he lets out a happy squeal. Our mom has severe mental illness and our dad is an alcoholic. Neither one were emotionally present in our childhood, and yet she has grown to be a better mother than I could have ever imagined. Both of my parents were very worried when she announced that she was pregnant. They thought this was a mistake, that she was too young to be a mother. It makes me so happy that they could not be more wrong and also very sad because their fear prevented them from showing up fully for her. I'm so proud of my sister and there's absolutely nothing that makes me happier than seeing her living a life that she is proud of. That's so great. And then finally, these are some uh, some more loves from uh, our friend, Liz Lover. I love that I have a job as a barista in a small cafe near my home, which allows me to get to know people who live near me. The nice regulars say hi to me when I'm walking my dog and even ask me how I and my dog are doing. One customer even hyped me up when I was in the process of adopting my rescue dog and shared my joy when I got him. I've lived in this place uh, for years feeling like an outsider for multiple reasons, but this is the first time it's starting to feel like home. I'm so glad that you shared that because that reminds me of the feeling um, that I think a lot of us, when we get into support groups and we take a commitment there, you know, maybe making coffee or setting up chairs or, you know, emptying the garbage, is it's the difference between going to a restaurant as a customer and working in a restaurant behind the counter and feeling connected to everything. It's a difference for me between the feeling of being a visitor and being home. But I'm glad I'm glad you shared that. Uh, I love when watching one of my comfort shows is able to lower my anxiety and help me focus on taking care of myself. And finally, I love when my day off from work, a sudden boost of energy and a wave of inspiration all happen on the same day and I can finally continue projects I've been neglecting. Love it. And you don't have to be hypomanic or manic to do it. That's the best is when you find motivation and passion. It isn't going to sink you into credit card debt. Thank thank you to to Will and to all of you uh, who are helping me through this difficult and uh, frankly scary financial time. Um, And especially those of you who fill out the surveys. It means so, so much to me. And um, and again, apologies to those of you that um, emailed me and heard nothing back. Uh, again, please, please re-email me because I'd, I'd like to read what you read. And if your email said, Paul, you're the worst person in the world, I will never listen to your show again. Deep at your core... You're a piece of shit. Send it anyway. 
it's it's going to keep me in check. If you're out there and you're feeling stuck, never, ever, ever. I think my neighbors heard that. Forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.